Hi everyone, I'm Megan Benton. I'm the Research Director for MPI Europe. I'm really pleased to welcome you to this webinar on seasonal worker programs in Europe, lessons learned and ways forward. I'm just going to get the housekeeping notes out of the way first. Um, so the audio from today's webinar will be on our website later today. Uh, for any technical problems, you should email events at migrationpolicy.org. If, if you have problems hearing, uh, we suggest that you dial in using the call-in information you'll have on your email confirmation. And then finally, we're going to have a, a written, not a voice Q&A at the end of the call. So you can start preparing your questions now and type them into the Q&A or chat box on the right of your screen. Or you can email them at events at migrationpolicy.org or even tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy. Um, this webinar is highlighting findings from our new report, uh, Seasonal Worker Programs in Europe, by Kate Hooper and Camila Koz. Um, that's on our website, and the link is, is on your screens right now. Um, but we're going to discuss the implications more broadly today. So when we think about seasonal workers, we often focus on the stereotype of Polish agricultural workers in the UK or Germany, Thai berry pickers in Sweden, Mexican farm workers in the US Midwest on this side of the Atlantic. But seasonal work isn't just about the patterns or different groups um, in different sectors. Um, it's it's really an issue that's at the heart of how you build well-functioning immigration systems that meet the economic interests of receiving societies, but also support individual migrants, protect them from exploitation and abuse, um, and also reduce the incentives for illegality and informality across the migration spectrum. Now, in Europe in particular, there's been a lot of interest in recent years about whether legal migration pathways, uh, including seasonal worker programs, can begin to attract and divert people who might otherwise come through irregular routes. So we're also very pleased today to be showcasing uh, some of the findings from a really ambitious, uh, deeply thoughtful project on this topic, uh, which is called Legal Migration for Work and Training, Mobility Options uh, to Europe for Those Not in Need of Protection. This is led by the Expert Council of German Foundations on Integration and Migration, or SVR for short, um, as well as the Migration Policy Institute Europe, and it's funded by the MacArthur Foundation. So we have some great speakers on the line today. Uh, we have uh, my colleague Kate Hooper, who is a policy analyst at MPI, and she co-authored the brief that we're launching today, as well as the bigger report um, that, this, um, um, that we were a part of. And then Jan Schneider, he's the head of the research unit um, at SBR, who led the work um, on their side, as well as Stephanie Morell, who is the CEO of Concordia. Now, before I hand over to Kate, I just wanted to set out a few framing questions. So I mentioned that the sort of hook for today's webinar is that we're discussing the implementation of the Seasonal Workers Directive. The goal of that is really to harmonize the rules on seasonal worker programs in Europe, uh, to curb illegal employment, to protect workers' rights, but also to start to think about development benefits for countries of origin. Um, as I said, uh, there's a sort of interest um, in European countries about whether seasonal worker programs can be one small piece of the answer to how you ultimately reduce incentives for irregular migration. So there's an important shift here to thinking about how these programs can be a sensible migration management strategy, not just an economic one. Uh, it's also a very important moment for the UK um, as it considers uh, how and how to sort of soften the impact of Brexit on particular sectors that rely on, on free movement and the kind of closing um, of the low-skilled migration channel. So I'm really excited that we have Stephanie on the line um, who's going to talk about how Concordia is managing the new 
UK pilot program for seasonal workers, which is one of the successors to the uh, pre-Brexit free movement system. Um, but I think that a lot of countries are facing the same big questions here, which are how can these programs be designed to minimize exploitation and abuse, and what protections need to be in place to protect local workers? How can we make sure that these programs respond to labor needs um, in a timely fashion, especially when there are so many factors that are unpredictable, whether they're other forms of migration, the weather, climate, the economic cycle, all makes the scale um, and location of labor needs quite difficult to predict. How can we cut red tape and shorten the length of time that it takes to hire people under these programs so they act as an incentive for employers to hire legally above board rather than going through informal routes, especially a problem in countries that already have a pool of rejected asylum seekers or visa overstayers um, contributing to that workforce? And then a sort of undernoted area is to what extent should we be thinking about the integration of temporary seasonal workers? Are they able to build skills they can use uh, if and when they return home? Are there any implications to people coming back uh, year in, year out? So we're going to turn to Kate first for some uh, thoughtful reflections on these questions. Um, as I said, Kate is a policy analyst with MPI's international program. Uh, and she works primarily on labor migration as well as a host of other uh, smart topics. Over to you, Kate. Thanks, Megan. Um, so as, as you mentioned, um, the brief that we're discussing today um, sprang out of our research project with SVR, um, which looked at pathways for low and middle skilled migrants um, to move to Europe. And we had some case studies on France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Sweden, which I highly recommend looking at. So during the course of our research, we found that seasonal work was often a key pathway for low-skilled workers to move to Europe. Um, each country had its own very interesting history of seasonal migration. So as you mentioned, some countries like Germany and the UK have really relied on recruiting seasonal workers from Eastern European countries. Um, other countries like Spain and France also actively recruit workers from non-EU countries like Morocco. And then, as you mentioned, the um, very interesting case of Sweden, where they rely on recruiting berry pickers from Thailand, which seemed like a more unusual pathway. Um, and so our three lessons from our research, which really focused on this sort of non-EU migrants moving to Europe for seasonal work. Um, I think the first lesson from our research was that recruitment procedures need to be transparent, standardized, and responsive. So the two issues here are that First, when you're looking at industries like agriculture or hospitality that rely on seasonal worker, um, you often don't have that much advance warning, either of the numbers of workers or the timing that you need um, these workers for. So there's a real need for sort of policies that can swiftly admit workers to meet these needs and that can scale up or down as needed. And then the second issue was that um, some of these programs really rely on informal word of mouth processes to hire workers, which isn't inherently bad, um, but moving towards sort of more formalized procedure allows greater insight. So some principles for consideration from our work um, is to really think about the scope to simplify these recruitment procedures. So for example, allowing employers who play by the rules to access expedited recruitment, um, making sure that it's transparent and easy for, for employers and workers to navigate, and then um, exploring ways to open up new recruitment channels. So, for example, um, investing in partner countries um, and really building that capacity for local employment agencies. A second lesson from our research 
was to prioritize better worker protections by really investing in monitoring and, and outreach. Um, so the issue here was that uh, seasonal workers can be especially vulnerable to exploitation. So this is linked to the short-term labor-intensive nature of their work, which um, in the cases of fruit and vegetable picking, for example, can be in quite remote locations. And also there are limited ties to the country. So there's, for example, maybe a lack of host country language skills. Um, there's also sometimes an emphasis in these programs on recruiting female seasonal workers with families back home. So Spain has pioneered this approach, um, partly to try and reduce the incident of visa overstays. The idea being that if you pick someone who has clear ties back in their country of origin, they're less likely to overstay. Um, but one of the sort of unexpected consequences of that, of that policy decision is that you've got this group who are now at particular risk of gender-based violence and abuse. So some principles for consideration here are that increased monitoring and oversight in destination countries really needs to be a priority. So you need more resources for inspections and also ensuring that there's awareness of the particular vulnerabilities of this group. Pre-departure orientations can also really help set expectations for seasonal workers on their working conditions and the services available to them. And it's also key to invest in services that can offer advice and support to seasonal workers, but also to think about how accessible these services are for seasonal workers especially those who might be working in remote settings, um, and also whether there needs to be more tailored support for certain groups, such as female seasonal workers. And then finally, another consideration is to think about what existing protections are in place. So the Seasonal Workers Directive that you mentioned earlier um, has provisions for seasonal workers to switch employers. This is a really you know, useful mechanism for a seasonal worker to, to escape poor working conditions. But I think that we need to explore the extent to which this really can be used by workers who are on such short-term contracts and who also may lack the networks to find new employment. And then a third and final lesson um, is to really capitalize on the opportunities to tap the development benefits of seasonal migration for workers and their communities. So currently, there are some opportunities for skills development, but these are really focused on equipping workers to perform their roles. Um, generally, we found there is much less attention paid to what skills seasonal workers could put to use when they return home and ways to potentially support workers and their communities. So here you could consider the following principles. Um, one would be to link up remittances to local development plans and opportunities to save, invest, or access remittance-based loans, so fitting into sort of broader development practices here. Another option is to explore more, more concrete options for skills development, whether this is linked to the role that they're working in, so ways to upskill, or broader training opportunities, so things like host country language tuition, um, literacy and numeracy training, or other life skills like driving or IT skills that are more generally applicable. Here, of course, the um, issue is that there are really tight profit margins in some of these industries. So employers may be reluctant or just simply unable to offer this type of add-on skills training, especially if you're hiring someone for only a few months at a time. But here, um, one interesting example um, is Australia and New Zealand, where development agencies have funded this type of support. Um, so they have sort of provided this as an add-on service, really sort of to emphasize the development benefits here. Um, and another option is to even explore whether member states who are recruiting from the same countries could even band together to offer this type of service. 
So here it's a sort of new field, but I think it offers potentially a nice opportunity to really leverage the development benefits of migration and to sort of locate seasonal migration into broader labor migration and development strategies. Great. Thank you so much, Kate, for really talking us through the, the nuts and bolts of some of the design questions with these programs, but also leaving us with uh, some of those really provocative new ideas on how to uh, harness the development benefits of these programs. This is often seen as the kind of holy grail of these programs, but there's rarely a sort of concrete plan of action of actually how to, you know, harness these benefits. So there's some really smart ideas that um, this brief has put on the table, so thank you. I'm going to turn next to um, Jan Schneider, who is the head of the research unit at SBR, um, and he's been leading um, on this uh, project on the SBR side. He's going to talk a little bit today about seasonal migration to Germany. Thank you for joining us, Jan, and over to you. Hello, everybody, and good afternoon from Berlin. Um, uh, happy to be online here, and thank you, Kate, for uh, really putting in a nutshell the result of uh, of uh, part of our joint project here. It has been a real pleasure uh, working on that with you. Um, I would like to give you in the uh, upcoming four or five minutes an overview on the situation of seasonal employment in Germany. Part of um, what I'm referring to are results from a recent uh, separate study that um, I did on the foreign workforce of the German food production um, um, industry financed by the Open Society Foundations. Um, so um, I will focus on seasonal work in agriculture, which uh, is by far the most important sector for seasonal work. Um, in Germany. Um, uh, the agricultural field accounts for uh, slightly less than 1% of the German GDP, um, and it accounts for about 1.3% of the total workforce in Germany. Uh, that's uh, slightly below 1 million people, just to give you an idea. Um, and annually, there is about 300,000 seasonal workers employed for uh, periods um, between two and four months in Germany on fields in agriculture, mostly in harvesting. Traditionally, uh, Polish migration has been um, uh, the most important source for, for labor migration besides um, household members who have traditionally been helping in harvesting, particularly women and children. Um, but uh, the Polish migration has been going on for 200 years already to Western Germany. Now, looking at the more recent history for the past uh, 25 or so years, the number of seasonal workers, uh, as I mentioned before, has ranged at about 300,000 uh, per season. Um, until around about the year 2004, 2005, the um, share of uh, Polish nationals was about 85% of those workers. Um, but ever since, it has dropped to less than half um, of the seasonal worker population over the last uh, 10 or 15 years with uh, basically uh, Romanian nationals taking over and being the biggest group in recent years. There are a further rather small quotas uh, of nationals from uh, Bulgaria, Croatia, Hungary, and um, most recently also Serbia. Um, so before accession of the Middle and Eastern European states, uh, Poland and Romania as third countries to Germany were subject to bilateral agreements with uh, the German Federal Employment Agency um, and there was actually a well-rehearsed practice of registering a potential need for workers on the side of the German agricultural enterprises. And there was a well-rehearsed practice of partner employment agencies in the countries of origin, Poland and uh, Romania primarily, 
uh, vetting candidates um, for a pool of workers to be referred um, to Germany. Uh, during that time, um, there was hardly any shortage of, of labor as the system uh, could be managed precisely and labor supply was, was sheer endless. Um, of course, this had a, um, a downside to it. A lot of reports um, on substandard labor conditions or exploitative work relationships were there, or sometimes there were even no reports at all. We had sort of an underreporting and also uh, not a lot of research going on in that area, which is uh, basically never a good sign for workers' uh, rights. Seasonal workers in Germany um, have not been subject to any um, collective bargaining agreements. Um, it was externally, the uh, trade unions were not responsible for them. And um, remember that there was no minimum wage in Germany until the year 2015. So a little bit um, sarcastically put, we could talk about an agri-employer's paradise regarding uh, these uh, third country, at the time, third country seasonal workers. So then I would like to refer, and this is my uh, um, almost uh, uh, last point, to two megatrends and developments. And the first of which was the accession of Poland in 2004, which was um, factually extended using the transitional period of seven years. So ever since 2011, uh, Poland um, has a full labor mobility towards Germany as has Romania since 2014. Um, and the second mega trend or mega development was the introduction of the minimum wage in 2015, which started at uh, an amount of slightly above seven euros per hour and is now slightly above nine euros per hour in Germany. Um, this compares to wages being paid in German agriculture before that time of about four, five, or maybe 550 euros per hour. Um, so you can see from that fact alone that there is a higher cost pressure on the side of agri-producers in Germany. Um, free labor movement uh, made other sectors much more attractive to the Polish and the Romanian workforce. So um, agricultural enterprises had, had, uh, were facing recruitment problems, uh, particularly in recent uh, years. And uh, as a side effect or a consequence of the higher cost pressure on the side of producers, um, the problem of unfair labor conditions uh, didn't go away. On the contrary, we see some more tricks coming up, like cutting working hours or paying for materials uh, and, and tools to be used in harvesting, overpriced housing for um, the people who sleep for the season uh, close to the field. And we have seen misuse of internship programs with Ukrainians and Russian students who would come to help on the field. Um, my last point may be to refer to the potential developmental aspects of seasonal work in Germany. Um, actually, this is often also among migration researchers faced with the prejudice that it is just about making use of the labor force, so, so to speak, exploiting people, uh, exploiting uh, diligent uh, people who perform hard work without actually giving them any skills. Uh, or having them acquire the means to contribute to development uh, back home, so to speak. Uh, and this is true in a lot of cases and has been true in a lot of cases regarding Germany, but there are also good examples of the opposite. Um, now I'd like to um, only give you one or two of these examples. Provided that climate and soil are suitable, which definitely is the case in, in Poland as a huge um, country very close to Germany, um, in recent years, and we're speaking about five to ten years, there's new asparagus cultures rapidly uh, growing in Poland where um, asparagus was hardly heard of 
20 years ago. So they weren't actually consuming it over there. Right now, some of those workers have taken with them the knowledge and the skills um, to, um, to start and also harvest these rather complicated um, cultures of agricultural produce. And the second example is apple cultures. Um, Poland would be apt to provide Germany and lots of, of Europe with um, quality and particular varieties of apples, and um, they are starting this business right now. My last point, um, given the shortage of seasonal workers uh, on the fields in the last few years, um, there has been an extreme lobbying for new placement agreements with third countries, as we practically don't have them right now. And as we speak, it seems that the Federal Employment Agency is about to conclude an agreement with Georgia, an important country of origin for applicants of international protection, just as a side note on the linkage of legal pathways um, to work with irregular migration into the asylum procedure, as Georgians have very little um, chances of being recognized uh, under protection standards. Um, and we're seeing the Federal Employment Agency negotiating um, other uh, agreements right now with third countries, although the scope of these programs seems to be rather low for the moment in the area of several hundreds per year, but we'll have to wait and see and safeguard uh, within the contents of these programs that labor rights are, are safeguarded, um, that swift recruitment procedures and transparent mechanisms um, are in place, and that support and counseling structures improve further and inspections be picked up on the situation of uh, laborers on the field. Thank you so much, Jan. That asparagus example is such a terrific um, example of, of knowledge transfer and the potential win-win of seasonal and circular migration. Also made me feel a bit hungry having not had breakfast. Um, but uh, I also really liked the way that you took us through the, the history of seasonal work um, in Germany. It's, it's a great reminder that EU accession wasn't kind of the, the beginning of this, but there was actually a really well-developed infrastructure um, in place. Um, so thank you very much for your comments. Uh, before I turn to Stephanie, I just, um, in case any of you um, have already been uh, collecting questions, um, I just wanted to uh, remind you again about how you can send those, send those across. Um, so for those of you who, are, who, who don't have a screen in front of you, um, basically you can write to events at migrationpolicy.org um, or you can use the chat function uh, or you can tweet at Migration Policy. Um, I am now going to turn to uh, Stephanie Morell, who is the CEO of Concordia, um, which is um, the largest seasonal labor provider to the agricultural sector and a charity. And it is managing the new um, seasonal workers pilot in the UK. So really pleased to have you, Stephanie, and, uh, and over to you. Hi. So I'm Stephanie Morell, and I'm a Chief Executive of Concordia. So we are a charity. We're a not-for-profit, and we've been going for 77 years, and we're the biggest seasonal labor provider in the UK. And that means we work with about 200 farms every year and can bring in up to, well, up to this year, about 10,000 workers, generally from Eastern Europe, um, work on UK farms. We've done that, again, up until last year from Eastern Europe, so mainly Romania, Bulgaria, so what Jan was saying was, was ringing bells. We also have uh, Lithuania and Latvia, interestingly, a handful of Polish workers. We've really pulled away from, from there. We have 90,000 seasonal roles that need filling every year in the UK, and for the past three years in a row, we've had 10 to 12% shortage across the whole of the sector in agriculture in the UK, so that's about 10,000 workers and 10,000 jobs unfilled, which meant that there's a lot of very strong lobbying of the government for a scheme that would allow us to look outside the EU um, to find 
different workers and to access a new market. Now, Brexit um, is one word that I was hoping to avoid, so it's not just linked to Brexit. However, Brexit and the feelings of workers within Europe to the UK, as well as their other opportunities and what else is going on, meant that we were pushed towards the cliff edge of needing access to a new, a new route to, to labour a lot more quickly, potentially, than we would have done otherwise. The British government um, very much listened and trusted the sector to be able to run a pilot, a two-year pilot which started December 2018 when the British government announced 2,500 workers could be recruited from outside the EU and a license was granted to Concordia as um, one of the operators of the license and to another commercial company to run the other half, split 50-50, we were recruiting 12-50 as were the other company. We were given three measures. The first measure is that 95% of all of our workers need to get a visa, so on us to make sure that we recruit from countries um, where we could get those interviews done properly and get the motivation of the individuals right. 97% of all those that got a visa had to arrive at their place of employment, so at the farm, and 97% of um, all of those that came to the UK had to go back to their country of origin at the end of this six-month visa, so specifically a six-month visa to work in edible horticulture. And that was it. That was the program. We filled in our response to the tender, and very much our response to the tender was how we choose to run the pilot for ourselves. So we have um, decided to ensure that workers came over with basic English for health and safety reasons, although we've been so overwhelmed by response to the pilot that actually we have individuals coming through very highly motivated, very qualified, and with really very good English. We have recruited from three countries specifically last year. That was Russia, Ukraine, and Moldova. And we've added this year Georgia, Belarus, and Barbados to those three countries. We worked with 24 farms. And interestingly, because we are a not-for-profit, we have a major focus on the worker themselves. So we do provide free training in language skills when necessary in maths and IT. We do support funding for um, training in terms of supervisory roles, campsite warden roles, uh, driving, spraying, that type of thing to try and support them a little bit more when the, the workers come over. We are known as being the leader in worker welfare in the UK. So in that sense, we do an awful lot to ensure that the whole of the supply chain that we work with is as clean as it possibly can be and risks are limited to the minimum. Every single farm that has worked on this pilot is audited twice. We have a full-time employee whose role is to audit every single farm once, and everyone else gets um, the team that are office-based will also go out and audit for the second time. That involves worker surveys, uh, independently done by an external company, as well as done internally to gather feedback. We have um, focus groups. We check for labor abuse. We check for modern slavery. Um, we also have what we call our pastoral funds. So one of our drivers for our charity is to ensure that we foster cross-cultural relationships. So we ensure that farms where these workers are have access to a fund which can um, allow money to be spent on anything linked to understanding more about different cultures. So that could be a trip to a theme park, to a local town, to London, to wherever, or it could be investment into potentially picnic ventures, football kits, um, markings on the ground so that um, workers can play volleyball in their time off. So we very much drive the, the wraparound support for, for workers. And because we work with so many farms, the 200 that I mentioned, workers can also be transferred very, very easily where necessary, 
either through um, potentially a clash in values between the, the individual and the farm, or more likely when weather has meant that um, work has come to an end prematurely, we can move workers to another farm and thus guarantee as much as we can a full six months of work under that visa. The extension that you may or may not have seen came from the British government last Wednesday. So our Home Secretary announced an amendment and an update to the immigration policy, which included a strap line, which was an extension of this pilot specifically for edible horticulture from, uh, from 2,500 workers to 10,000 workers. So as of last Wednesday, Concordia is now finding half that amount from the six countries that I mentioned earlier. And my final thing to mention in terms of the pilot um, is the measures um, Concordia has absolutely nailed them. We have workers, every single worker with a visa, for example, there's been no issues at all in our measures back to the government. One of the things that has come out in terms of worker welfare as part of this program is that where the British government has its own embassy and visa office stacked uh, and employing uh, British staff, the access to the visa is free. There's no cost for an appointment. There's no cost for um, passports to be sent to individuals, etc. In all countries bar Russia that we are working is in, the actual visa office has been contracted out to a private firm, and there are costs linked to this. So, for example, you could be paying 50 euros just to get into a building to have your um, fingerprints taken in order to apply for the visa. So we're looking at this very closely to see which country we would choose to work with in order to make sure that the workers really do pay absolutely nothing apart from their travel over to the UK and the individual visa cost, but the wraparound costs linked to commercial companies are reduced to the maximum. Great. Thank you so much, Stephanie. That was a really brilliant and so great to hear about the detailed work that you're doing, including the focus on worker rights and the supply chain. Um, and thanks also for situating this in, in context around the, the broader sort of shortages that this sector is facing. Uh, we already have um, a ton of questions that have come in, so we're going to do our best to get through all of them. But just before um, we start um, uh, allocating them to the different speakers, I just wanted to uh, remind everyone of how you can ask questions. Uh, there's a Q&A chat function on the right of the screen, or you can write um, events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can tweet at Migration Policy. Um, so um, the first question um, is about the best tools for addressing exploitation, and Stephanie talked a lot about this. So I was wondering if, Jan, you could share um, some of the um, best initiatives that exist in Germany on that front. Um, yeah, pleasure. Um, this was actually part of that of that research I was I was referring to. Um, there is a number um, of tools to curb exploitation, although um, uh, in the area of um, having controls and checks on the field, um, there is um, special authorities in, in each member state uh, responsible um, for for labor inspections. Um, in Germany, it's the it's called Finanzkontrolle Schwarzarbeit. It's part of the Central Customs Authority. And um, one of their major tasks with the workforce of um, up to 10,000 people in the, in the coming years um, is to have regular inspections on the black labor market, not only with regards to irregular employment of foreign nationals, but also uh, with regard to tax fraud and uh, the withholding of social security contributions. So uh, one of the frequently um, asked for measures and tools is to just uh, step up um, uh, with these inspections, which the agency is actually doing, but it turns out that particularly in the agricultural field, it is difficult um, to, to safeguard that because 
For instance, if compared to the sector of um, construction, where you can easily um, access uh, construction sites of new buildings, um, also close down um, the area around it to do the inspections and controls and look for workers' papers, it's much more difficult in the countryside to access remote fields um, of, of entrepreneurs. A second example, which uh, really has been subject to a lot of development um, in Germany, has been bottom-up. Uh, and um, with the help of um, trade unions um, and counseling services at the level of the federal states, the 16 federal states, for instance, there has uh, been a very good infrastructure of counseling and support services built up um, for these um, migrant workers, particularly, of course, for those coming from, from other EU countries, including um, uh, counseling in, uh, in mother tongues, um, uh, language of origin, including uh, legal advice, including um, um, legal professionals who would go for a settlement if there was a quarrel between uh, a dispute between an employer and, and their employees. However, the system as it functioned um, until recently or is still functioning is, is not easy to be controlled because um, everybody is free movers and uh, people um, organize their stay in Germany either by themselves or by the employers or even more so by dubious um, agencies in countries of origin in Romania and Poland. And there's dozens of agencies. Some of them are doing a decent job with uh, very low referral fees, but others also exploiting, starting to exploit workers as they apply for a position in German agriculture. So um, I would see that uh, a lot of um, room for maneuver for, uh, for future um, development there, also from the side of the responsible state authorities to do more um, on, on the front of uh, reducing uh, and eventually uh, eradicating um, uh, exploitative uh, work relationships. Thank you, Jan. Um, Kate, we have a question here about the rates of return and absconding. What are the steps that governments can take to make sure that seasonal, seasonal workers don't overstay their visa or disappear into the informal economy? Sure. So I think during the course of our research, we came across a few different approaches which had some advantages and trade-offs. Um, so I think one general point is that you need to look at the factors that are really linked to overstays. Um, so one, one common issue is that if um, a worker has accrued debt by moving to a country for seasonal work, um, they need to be able to pay that off. And so that can be one of the challenges. So thinking about whether, for example, you could require employers to cover some travel to cover some of these travel expenses so workers are, have less debt and are less liable to pay this off as a result. Um, some countries have tried to really track returns by um, requiring returning migrants to register in their country of origin. So Spain and France have both done this. Um, so France, I think, is with one of their local offices in the country. Spain's with the relevant embassy. But that allows you to really sort of track when people are leaving and um, when people are coming back. Um, I think another um, approach is really to sort of try and create incentives to play by the rules. Um, so France, building on its um, requirement to, um, for, that, that migrants register in their 
country of origin. Um, they've really prioritized the rehiring of workers who've already been to France and come back and registered. So there's a sort of reward if you play by the rules, um, and so there's an incentive there, both for employers who might want to hire the same workers for multiple seasons and for the workers themselves to you know, stick to the rules. Um, New Zealand, so outside of Europe, um, New Zealand has um, a policy of holding employers liable for the cost of removing workers who overstay. So that's quite an, an interesting approach where there's a clear sort of financial penalty for employers if they don't keep on top of returns. And then, as I mentioned earlier, um, another approach that Spain has tried is to try and select certain profiles of seasonal workers. So um, looking at sort of female seasonal workers of families back home. But um, as I mentioned, this, uh, this kind of raises other issues. So obviously there's a sort of ethical consideration of um, separating a parent from their family for several months at a time. Um, and then there's also the documented incidents of gender-based violence and abuse against female seasonal workers. So that sort of brings up another sort of host of challenges. Thank you very much, Kate. Um, Stephanie, we have a, a question here about whether the sort of Concordia model can be seen anywhere else, whether anyone's tried to replicate it um, in, in the rest of, the, of, of Europe. Um, are there any similar initiatives? And, and perhaps I can add on uh, another sort of half question to that, which is about the potential for it to scale. So if we do see um, rising labor shortages after the uh, aforementioned B word, um, what, what's the potential? How 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 large could it go? Um, I'll take the first part, which is similar models. Um, I'm not aware of any. I know that um, in terms of the way that um, I'll say the UK works in general, then Concordia has taken to to an extra level. Is obviously everyone that we work with has a, a GLA a license, so the Gang Licensed Labour Abuse Authority. So. We are licensed by the Home Office in essence, by the government to say that we are clean, that we work well, we work legally. Um, and every single partner that we have overseas has exactly the same license and they are not allowed to even speak to anyone before, um, before they have this license because they represent us. So that is how we work um, and how I know other labor providers have to work because no license means no recruitment in the UK. Um, so in that sense, there are similar, similar models we take it a step further in that we try and ensure that we don't just follow the legal model, we follow the ethical model to make sure that all of our audits, all of the people we work with follow the ETI base code. We make sure that all of GLA is taken to the extra level, not just the legal level, the highly recommended level and the preferred levels um, and, and that kind of thing. So that's as hard as we push. We do our, our very best to make that really our, our, our number one drive. The second part of this question was about scale. Now, we hoped that the pilot would be extended, so, so we'd be recruiting, rather than 1,250, we'd be recruiting 5,000. It was aligned the Conservative Party manifesto. It then went very, very quiet. So we had about four hours extra notice than the rest of the country on this change to the immigration plan, although clearly we were hoping for and had planned for it. Um, it is scalable. It takes time to scale because every single person that comes to the UK via Concordia has a face-to-face -face interview. Every single person is checked in terms of their motivation. Um, every single farm where a worker goes to, we go through all sorts of checks, risk assessments, health and safety checks, audits, if we haven't worked with them before. And even if we have done, we'll still go in and check all of this. So it's not a quick and easy way to grow because we put so many checks in. However, to go to 5,000 this year is perfectly possible. Um, to go much further, 
bearing in mind that what I said in my introduction was we needed 90,000 roles filled. At the moment, you have two operators of a pilot. If we want to go from 10,000 this year to possibly 60,000 people filling 90,000 roles, that can't be done with two people. And we do need other people to be tested to make sure that their way of working also works. So yes, it's scalable. Um, it would be tricky to get to 90,000 roles filled, I think, at short notice. Thank you very much. Um, Kate, we have a couple of design questions here that I'm going to um, group together. Um, one observes that the UK scheme requires non-EU workers to pay their own visa costs, and the question is about what the practice is in other countries. Um, and then the second question is about this um, issue of whether or not work permits are tied to particular employers or whether or not workers can, can move around. So um, the, the example given by the questioner is about Canada, which has recognized that this can be um, a key determinant of abuse or exploitation, and therefore it's instituted a, an open work permit um, for at-risk workers. Sure. So um, in terms of visa costs, um, yes, you may be required to cover visa costs, and any other big expense um, can be travel costs, um, and that can vary a little bit by country. So in some, some cases, um, there may be a requirement for the employer to split the cost of travel with um, the seasonal worker. In some cases, the seasonal worker themselves may be liable for that cost, or in some cases, the employer may cover the entire um, cost of travel, um, which you know is, is a consideration. I mean. Um, I think that, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, accruing that kind of debt can be a little bit prohibitive, especially if you're recruiting from a much uh, lower income country, so that's worth thinking about. Um, in terms of the mobility of workers, um, so countries that are signatory to the Seasonal Workers Directive, um, one of the, so that's not the UK, um, sadly, um, but uh, most other European countries um, signed up to the uh, directive. And one of the um, terms in the directive is that seasonal workers should be able to um, switch employers under certain conditions. So it's, it is an employer-linked permit, but there are provisions to move um, to another employer if need be. Um, I mean, again, the issue here is that um, if that's, if, if that switch is, um, is basically done by seasonal workers under their own steam, um, the question then is how easy is that for them to do in practice? Um, if you don't speak the host country's language, if you don't have many networks, um, there's a little bit of a question mark um, whether you would actually, within that, say, six-month period, be able to find another source of employment um, and move, or whether you'd rather just stick it out for that period. Um, so I think that's one question that will be quite interesting to focus on um, as the EU reviews some of its seasonal workers worker programs later this year, is the extent to which this is actually you know, a provision that could be used practically by seasonal workers. Thank you very much, Kate. Um, Jan, we have a question here about the data limitations. So as a researcher, how difficult is it to get a sense of the sort of scale of seasonal migration? I mean, the problem with intra-EU mobility, particularly short term, is that it often kind of floats below the radar. So are governments in a position where they can identify where labor needs are and who is moving to take, um, um, to take up these jobs? Or are, or are there sort of significant data limitations that you've faced? Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. In fact, it is the latter. Um, there is significant data limitations at this moment, and these uh, limitations came about, ironically, um, with 
that uh, mega development of um, the Central and Eastern European countries um, accessing the European Union and becoming part of it as um, um, as citizens um, are under the free movement and free um, labor regime from that moment on. And they are sort of beyond the radar of any authorities which usually have to do um, with um, uh, issuing visas or with checking the employment conditions as a prerequisite for any visa or residence title. So uh, these people can be on the private market, be referred, be uh, transferred or applying themselves directly on, on German farms for work. So we are relying right now with um, very rough numbers on a um, survey that is done among agricultural um, enterprises um, every few years only. So the last survey of that so-called Agrarstrukturerhebung, Agricultural Structural Survey, uh, is from 2016. So figures are more than um, three years old. And um, that's how we find out how many uh, people in uh, the German agricultural industry are working as part of um, their um, families. Um, so uh, still a great part of um, farms in Germany is small and middle scale farms with, with members of the family working there. Um, it's uh, less than one third. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, uh, about one third of employees are seasonal workers who are hired um, exclusively for the time of, of, of harvesting. Um, and um, the remainder is, um, is regularly employed, uh, more or less um, full or part-time positions which are subject to social security uh, contributions. So there is at the moment significant limitations in data availability. Of course, we have some data which result from the uh, procedural statistics of institutions um, such as the customs units who are uh, doing the, um, the inspections on the fields um, to uh, to look at uh, a black market phenomena and so forth, but of course they are not they are not even covering a fraction of of uh, the enterprises there. So again, here no uh, reliable data. We are relying a lot on qualitative data um, gathered actually from those different um, counseling services that are um, out on the fields every spring and and summer, meeting the workers out there. But uh, naturally, they cannot um, tell us anything about um, the scope um, of the workforce um, from particular countries or particular areas of those countries. And bottom line is that uh, from the moment onwards that uh, Germany might um, start to implement um, placement uh, agreements with the labor authorities of third countries, subject to a procedure which might look maybe similar to that um, um, in the UK Concordia example, which I really admire and which I was happy to learn about in the, in the report that I, that I only read recently, uh, is that we will have uh, a greater uh, amount of figures, hopefully in the future, at least on um, the migration of seasonal workers from third countries. So, um, at the moment, the data situation is, uh, is not sufficient, um, but we hope that at least with regard to third country migration in the future, we'll have uh, more decent data. And by the way, also um, more opportunities, um, both for authorities, but also um, for civil society and um, counseling organizations to deliver their services and to safeguard um, proper um, and, and decent and fair labor conditions for those who are working on the fields and guaranteeing that uh, the Germans have their strawberries and their asparagus on the table.
Thank you very much, Jan. I'm glad you ended with an optimistic note um, as a researcher too. Um, Stephanie, uh, um, I have a question here that picks up on um, the points you were making in your last intervention about potential shortages uh, uh, and current shortages. Um, the government's, the UK government's new immigration plan makes reference to the fact that employers should invest in um, ways to improve productivity, so whether it's technology or, or training, as an alternative to previous reliance on, on low-wage labor. What are the potentials for technology um, in, in agriculture and horticulture, and is this a kind of reasonable strategy as well to try and mitigate uh, rising shortages? It's definitely reasonable to put on the table. I think the first thing is, I think agriculture in general and in Britain specifically, which is where I know best, get a bad press for not driving efficiency. We are getting paid as a sector the same, if not less, per kilo of crop than 12 years ago, 10 years ago. There's been absolutely no change in anything apart from potentially a little bit of eggs and a little bit of chicken. So if you're producing fruit, veg or meat in the UK, you're being paid the same as you were 10 years ago. You're doing that with fewer workers um, who are working um, similar hours. So in terms of efficiency, the sector has done a cracking job in driving efficiency already. That's in different ways of working, different crop yields, etc. Um, so that, I think that's the first point to, to sort of put on the table, that actually the sector has done a, a really good job so far. We, we shouldn't sort of put that to one side. Um, in terms of improved productivity and machines, not my personal area of expertise, although a lot of work has been done on this. The more we look into it, we are a good five to ten years away from anything being really seen regularly in the fields. Um, some crops are easier to pick than others. Um, for example, if you think of blackcurrant, um, we just literally send a, a machine down, it rips out the bush, the bush is then kind of sorted, the berries go off to make Ribena, pretty much and um, the rest of the bush is, is got rid of. There is a driver needed, that is it. Potatoes, again, very, very low need for, um, for, for humans to interact. When you're talking about picking asparagus, you're almost entirely human-led because, I mean, it's growing at four centimeters a day. You can almost see it growing, um, and you need to pick at exact moments, at exact cutting points, etc. And the same with strawberries. You could be sorting them into maybe 10, 15 different sizes, different colors, different shapes. Um, I mean, you can't have someone that's colorblind, and again, we're struggling to find machines that can check that kind of level. So absolutely more can be done, and lots of investment is going in. We're talking about a sector that doesn't um, have an awful lot to put into um, this. Labor is, well, was about 6% of their, their bills. If we, if we sort of put it that way, it's now creeping a lot, lot close to 65 66%. So there are no margins left really to do a lot of research into this, although some are doing a, a good job. So... I suppose to summarize is a lot's been done, there's a lot still to do, it is an answer, but you will still need labor to do the rest of it around the machine, so some of it will help, we won't ever get away from the need to need, I suppose, the need to have large numbers of seasonal workers. Thank you so much, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and Kate, we have a question here which is kind of the, the second half of, of why shortages emerge, which is about why countries rely on foreign workers to meet their seasonable, seasonal labor needs. Why is it so difficult to recruit locally, and, and what do you think it would take to reduce reliance on foreign seasonal labor, and is that a goal that, that countries should be aspiring to? 
So I think there are a few different factors that um, that come in here. Um, I one is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's difficult to recruit for several reasons. Um, I think one is that it can be comparatively low wages. Um, sometimes these jobs are in quite remote locations. Um, you can have quite labor-intensive roles with irregular hours, um, not that much security in the job. Um, and so it's a really sort of short-term temporary nature. So I think all of those factors can play into why it can be really hard to recruit people locally. Um, there's often just people may not have experience in, in that particular field. So um, if you're choosing between trying to hire locally or recruiting workers who have ex that specific experience in harvesting a crop, um, you know, it's much more appealing to go for the worker who has that experience as well. Um, so I think, yeah, there are quite a few sort of structural reasons why it can be quite difficult to hire locally. Um, and yeah, I mean, making these jobs more appealing to locals um, is challenging because, I mean, that would require doing something like increasing wages or reducing the hours or the intensity of the work. But the trade-off here is that it raises costs. And in some of these industries that have very low, um, you know, margins, um, that's just not really tenable. Um, and then, of course, you know, if employers still can't find workers, you know, this is maybe where automation and robotics comes in. That again, it's sort of, as Stephanie said, it's it's that sort of five to ten year perspective. It's about you know investing in the research there. So, I think there isn't in practice that much flexibility to really sort of respond to um, local hiring challenges unless you really sort of reevaluated how much people are willing to pay for these services or for these goods. Thank you, Kate. Um, Jan, we have a question here about the children of seasonal workers, which is making the point that in the United States, a child of a seasonal worker uh, would have citizenship of the, of the US. What is the situation um, in Germany, and is this a consideration? I mean, the, the classic thing that's often said about Germany was that guest worker programs um, you know, several decades ago actually became permanent migration vehicles because people wanted to have families or bring their families. Um, what, what is the situation now? Uh, well, if you're referring to, to seasonal work um, in, in, in agriculture, um, the situation has basically been that um, this migration is, is uh, rather strictly limited. Um, due to an indirect steering mechanism. And that indirect steering mechanism uh, refers to um, uh, those working hours not being subject to Social Security contributions um, if they are less than 70 days in a given year. So 95 or even 99% of seasonal workers employed now in German agriculture have a maximum stay um, in Germany of uh, 70 days. Um, as I mentioned, um, uh, right now 95% of, of the seasonal work taking place is mobility within the European Union. A downside of it uh, might be, and we have um, isolated um, cases and examples for that, um, that there is mothers or fathers going um, to Germany for a couple of weeks in the summer, uh, leaving their children with either the other parent or with grandparents or with relatives. That is a, a frequently um, observed sort of downside of seasonal migration, also in different contexts worldwide, as, uh, worldwide, as we know. Um, 
there is uh, usually not uh, much sense in taking children along as they are um, in their institutions like kindergarten and, and schooling back home. Um, if you refer to um, the situation of um, foreign labor in German agriculture in full jobs or in part-time jobs which are subject to social security contributions and which by the way are regulated and subject to the uh, residence act with a big reform just um, just in front of our door starting as of March. Um, um, of course for skilled labor um, in agriculture or in other professions and sectors um, there's an opportunity um, uh, on the basis um, um, primarily of European law for family reunification, uh, but this um, does not apply um, to, to seasonal work. And maybe uh, allow me one very short um, uh, comment on the, on the two um, uh, former aspects that, um, that Stephanie and, and Kate mentioned. Um, uh, as far as um, the recruitment of locals is concerned, um, Germany has a good tradition of trying uh, to avoid um, uh, recruiting uh, labor from other countries in that area, um, even supporting employment of the locally unemployed, short-term or long-term unemployed in times um, in the 1980s when unemployment reached 10, 12 or, or even 15 percent in some regions. And uh, those programs uh, desperately fail. And um, if you if you um, go on a German asparagus field um, in summer, among 100 uh, people working there, you might find um, uh, one German. And um, um, I recently visited one of the asparagus growers there. Um, um, it's it's just a result of the fact that this is dire and very hard work, which by the way requires in a lot of um, different cultures. Uh, particular skills, um, and, it's, and it's not by coincidence that it is the Thai berry pickers who go out into the fields in Sweden, one of the great examples of our joint case study with MPI. Um, it is not by coincidence that, uh, that um, uh, people from particular countries of origin where this knowledge is also uh, given to other people uh, are the source of that, of that seasonal work. And it's, it's basically the same with some of the cultures in agriculture in Germany. I've mentioned asparagus, but of course, um, um, uh, grapes and wine is, is the second big example for that, where um, agricultural enterprises rely on, uh, on the proven workforce and skills of people from the same region from year to year. Thank you so much, Jan. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Um, I think this has been a really rich and fascinating discussion, thanks um, to our uh, speakers, really fascinating interventions, but also some really great questions from the audience. So thank you so much for those, and apologies if uh, we didn't get to any of those. We'll follow up with you um, directly afterwards. Uh, just to point you again to um, some uh, resources on our website, the audio from today will be available later at migrationpolicy.org um, uh, forward slash events. Um, Kate's report, uh, Seasonal Worker Programs in Europe, um, is available at the link on your screens right now or on the homepage of our website. And the other reports from the SBR MPI Europe Research Project, Legal Migration for Work and Training, um, is also available on that link uh, on your screens right now. Um, for any reporters on the call who'd like some more information, um, please call Michelle at plus four four two zero if you're in Europe or if you're in the States, 202-266-1910. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a great day.